Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So China Room is about three brides marry three brothers. They don't even know which of which of the brothers are their husbands. What? Like they married to three brothers in a single ceremony, and they spend their days hard at work in the family's china room, sequestered from contact with the men. And they actually had to figure out which of the men is their husband. Oh my god! This is several <laughs> levels of f up. Hi everyone, welcome to part two of. 2021's anticipated needs. We didn't want this to be a two-parter, but there you go. We haven't even touched the books that are out in July to December, so. <laughs> and trust us, we have curated this list oh, yeah. within an inch of its life. Oh yeah, <laughs> trying really hard to only put in the really interesting stuff, but yeah, there's a lot of books coming out this year. Right. So we're going to start off with Asian lit. Um, I suppose Middle Eastern is considered Asian. So for those of you who love Omani's Joker Alharti's writings, she's got a new book out coming out in May called Bitter Orange Tree, uh, and it's a story of an Omani student Zohor at a British university as she reflects on her relationship with her grandmother who passed away just after she left the country. So as usual, she writes about family and she writes about identity and she writes about people who exist in two different worlds. Kind of a little bit like us, you know, because half of us probably have been educated elsewhere and half of us live here, Asian, Western. So she goes into the whole Middle Eastern uh, psyche of that. So it should be one of those kind of heavier reads. But if you like her kind of writing, then this could be the book for you. Okay, I'm going to start off with Chang Reilly's My Year Abroad, which is coming out in February. Chang Reilly is, of course, uh, quite a well-known Korean-American novelist, and he's also a professor of creative writing at Stanford University. Yeah, and he, he's written this story about a college student who gets pulled into the life of a Chinese-American entrepreneur. They go on a trip across Asia. He launches him into a world where he reconsiders everything anew, gives him new perspectives on life. It, it helps us to ponder the long-standing effects of stereotypes, Orientalism, capitalism, global trade, and mental health. It's, it's turning us around on what we've always considered to be the center of the world, which is basically very Eurocentric kind of viewpoint. I think that sounds like a really interesting read. Speaking of Korean writers, A. Ran Kim has a book out called My Brilliant Life. And it is a universal tale of family bonds and out-of-the-ordinary friendships. And it's for readers who like writers like Frederick Backman or Laurie Frankel or Margarita Montimore. So it is about a tight-knit family and you follow... Ariom, who is housebound because he has the accelerated aging disorder. There was a movie about that that I remembered. So he lives his life to the fullest, even though uh, he looks like a 60-year-old man. He's only a teenager. It goes through his conversations about his parents because he obviously writes about the people around him. He has conversations with little grandpa Jang, a 60-year-old neighbor and best friend. So his best friend, this teenager's best friend, is a grandfather. So it is supposed to be a really heartwarming, I guess quite sad book, but also a book about, you know, unexpected kindness and friendship. 
So maybe that might be something you might want to read. Very interesting. Land of Big Numbers is another book out in February. It's by Taiping Chen. And it's a collection of stories, actually. You know, it's set in China. It's about there's a man who tries his hand in the stock market. There's a stalker and his prey. There's a political activist, a professional gamer. There's different characters in, in all these stories. And Charles Yu, which we mentioned before as somebody that I really like his book. I, I think he's quite well known um, especially because he won the uh, National Book Award last year. And he says it's an immensely rewarding read from the first sentence to the last. So. And Taiping Chen is actually a former foreign correspondent. You know, he knows China really well. And I think as a journalist, he'd probably be good at writing about these people. So now, now any books recommended by Charles Yu and obviously Ted Chiang, you're definitely going to read, right? I'm going like, I can't help that, can I? <laughs> <laughs> It's like at one point, whenever like Stephen King recommends a horror book, I would usually pick it up because that's how I discovered Gillian Flynn and a few other writers. Although recently, not too sure. But anyway, <laughs> there's one more here uh, on your list, Diana, is The Forest of Stolen Girls by June Hur. And this actually segues us quite nicely into YA and fantasy because this is actually a YA historical mystery set in 15th century Korea. And it does sound quite fascinating, doesn't it, Diana? Yeah, you know, Hwani's father vanishes after investigating the disappearance of 13 young women. And she returns home to try to figure out what happened. And yeah, she uncovers secrets of a small village. Ooh. Mm. The mm. Forest of Stolen Girls, out in April. I got a number of um, translated reads in here that I think are, are really super interesting. The first one is actually from Israel. It's uh, translated from Yara Shahori. It's called Aquarium. And it's a story about two sisters who are born deaf and they're raised by their parents to like think of hearing people as completely different species. They're isolated from, from everybody else. So their parents consider deafness to be no disability, but it's an alternate way of life. And it's far better to the people who can hear because, you know, they, they're not sensitive to certain things. So like they grow up in like this kind of semi-feral kind of life when, when they're actually forced out into the greater world. It's how they have to tell themselves the stories about who they are and what life is. So they have to relearn how to live, how to, how to tell their own stories. It sounds really interesting. Hmm. Is it considered YA? I don't believe so. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Hmm. It's just that the protagonists are young then. Mm. Yeah, it's okay. when they were young, but when they grow up, I guess, later on, they, it's how they, they view the world when they've grown up and they've moved away from the world that their parents locked them into. I have a few more. There's a book called China Room by Sanjeev Sahota, which is not a translator read. Um, Sanjeev Sahota is based in the UK. It's a multi-generational novel of love, oppression, trauma, and the pursuit of freedom, inspired in part by the author's own family history. So China Room is about three brides marry three brothers. They don't even know which of, which of the brothers are their husbands. What? Like they're married to three brothers in a single ceremony and they spend their days hard at work in the family's China Room, sequestered from contact with the men. And they actually have to figure out which of the men is their husband. Oh my God. This is several levels of F up. Yeah, it's so weird, right? So, okay, there's another story about a young man who travels in 1999 from England to the now deserted farm, you know, the China room, which is locked and barred. And he has to reflect on his past of the traumas of his adolescence and his experience of, of addiction, racism, estrangement from the culture of his birth, 
And then he has to like figure out, I guess it's, it's how these two people kind of like connect to each other. Interesting. Very interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's one to watch. Another one that I thought would be really interesting to read is Ge Ling Yan's The Secret Talker, which is translated from Chinese. It's meant to be a, a a mashup between the silent patient and the vegetarian. So Ooh, it's like a ten- psychological thriller then. Yeah, a gripping uh, psychological tale of a woman with a secret admirer. Nice. And she's got her own secrets as well. <laughs> Everybody's got secrets, honestly. <laughs> so it's it's about Hong Mei, who is a perfect wife to Glenn, who is a college professor. But her quiet life in Northern California fractures when a mysterious person begins emailing her pulling her into this game of cat and mouse. And who is this person stalking her? And how does he know her deepest, darkest secrets? She's forced to confront her dark past in China, how the facade of her idyllic life is laid bare. Yeah, and her only hope is to turn the tables on her tormentor. Mm. I think it's really easy to stalk people these days, especially on cyber, or, you know, like cyber stalkers yep. and stuff like that. Yep. But this yep. feels to be a, very, a more traditional type stalker. Maybe, maybe. Right? Yeah, sounds interesting, mm. right? Another book that has been translated from the Egyptian is um, The Republic of False Truths by Allah al-Aswani. Okay, it comes out in April and it's about a general Awani who is a pious man who loves his family. At the same time, he's also a guy who tortures and kills his enemies of the state. Under the regime of Hosni Mubarak, he's a quite important man. But now the regime is facing a big crisis. So he has to figure out where he is in this whole scheme. And I think it also exposes like how maybe the kind of cognitive dissonance that we have when we try to, we, we believe certain things about ourselves, but at the same time, in the name of like what you think is righteous. Yeah, this is sort of like a cautionary tale again. And I think, I think it's, very, it's very timely as well because it's really true of a lot of the um, political movements around the world as well. This information kind of movements where people, you know, they do anything they can to hold to power. But at the same time, they feel that righteous because they're doing things. I can stay in power, therefore I can help the people that need help. Does the means justify the end? Mm, it's like the benevolent dictator, isn't it? Yeah. You feel yeah. that these are your people. The best thing for them is for you to look after what they need. But obviously, mm-hmm. once you become a dictator, then that's when you start getting paranoid and you start, you know, being a tyrant. So there's always that fine line, isn't it? Between yes. a benevolent yes. dictator and a tyrant. No, the other day I was like, it was quite hilarious because there was a stupid meme going around, like like North Korea's leader was like going, I'm not the craziest leader in the in the world. Because of what's going on in America. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, Are you done? Before we finish, um, Miyako Kawakami has a new book out called Heaven. It's coming out in April. I don't think it's new. that She, did, she didn't write it in this year. But, but yeah, it's probably just newly translated. She is, of course, the you know, really famous author of Breast and Eggs. It was one of the breakout books of 2020. So Heaven is the story of a 14-year-old student who is subjected to relentless torment for having lazy eye. And instead of resisting, he chooses to suffer in complete resignation. And the only person who understands what he's going through is a female classmate who suffers similar treatment at the hands of her tormentors. So it's all about bullying, I suppose, an exposition of the philosophical and religious debates concerning violence to which the weak are subjected and why why society condones this kind of thing, you know? Mm. I, think, I think, yeah, I mean, like Kawakami... Uh, did really amazing work in Breast and Eggs to to talk about the lack of agency. 
Yeah, I mean, like women are are actually kind of like we put women into these these roles, and then you know when they suffer from them, we sort of think you know that that's what you did to yourself, right? She's she's probably got a lot to say about bullying as well. Yeah, I think that's probably her wheelhouse. You know, like people who suffer from lack of agency mm-hmm. and what sort of things you learn. So in this circumstance, it's probably learned cruelty of the meek. So if you were bullied when you were younger, you much likely would grow up to be a bully yourself. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes when when you find somebody weaker than you, even at that age, you will end up bullying them because yeah. you kind of learn that language. So maybe that's a whole vicious cycle as well of, of what happens when you have a certain lack of control over your own life. It's really quite interesting to talk about how we perpetuate these kind of things because we've had to suffer them ourselves, you know? It's like the culture of hazing when people get into college and stuff like that. Like, why do you haze somebody else? Because you had it done to you and therefore it's a twisted idea of justice or it's just because it's cultural kind of thing because we've always done it, you know? And it, it really boggles the mind that we, we perpetuate this. But it comes back to the same, but I think I, I've read people say things like, you know, the reason why we do female genital mutilation is because we had it done to ourselves. So that's what you're supposed to do to maintain yourself in this culture, which is just ridiculous at the same time. But, but it's the way that humans think. Yeah, it's like if I have to go through it and it didn't kill me, then you can certainly go through it because it's character building. Always a stupid word, character building. I mean, what character are you building? Probably like a character of a bully or a character of somebody who has mental health issues. It's interesting to think that how hard it is to break that cycle though. Because sometimes it's kind of ingrained in you, right? Let's go into children and young adult. I've got a little romance here called A Fur Love Story by Loan Lee. And you know, I love fur. Like I can eat fur every day, Diana. So this is about, this is almost a, a Romeo and Juliet of fur. Because you have two rivals in the fur business. I think this is set in um, somewhere in America, probably San Francisco or something like that. So you have Bao Nguyen who is uh, steady and strong, not really interesting, but he works at his, at his parents' fur restaurant. He is his parents' fifth favorite employee. Not ideal. <laughs> and then you have Lin Mai, who is a bit of a firecracker, because she's stable when unlit, but full of potential for joy and fire. She's an art student. She loves art. The only problem is that she has to work at her parents' fur restaurant because nobody else is good enough. Right? So for years, they basically warred at this who has the best fur. And they've obviously avoided each other for most of their lives. But suddenly when they met, they realized that, hey, how come lah? What, what are we warring for? Because at the end of the day, we want more people to eat fur. And then of course, they fall in love lah. So I think that's kind of cute. And I'm sure it's a book that's going to make me hungry. I'm just going to really quickly mention a few um, um, books that I think, I think people definitely need to look out for. Uh, first of all is... Concrete Rose by Angie Thomas, who is, of course, you know, uh, I hate you give is a huge name and, and, and it's been adapted for the screen as well. And that's coming out. It's actually, it should be already out by the time this episode is out on January the 12th. It's actually a prequel of The Hate You Give. So it's the story of um, Star Carter's um, parents and the events surrounding her birth. So it's um, set 17 years before the events of The Hate You Give. Um, Maverick Carter, he has to figure out what's going to happen when he's, he's in a gang, his mother is overworked, his father is in prison, and then he, suddenly he, he finds out he has, he's going to be a father, right? So he then has to change everything and how it, it's the story of how he managed to like um, turn his world around, I guess. When it comes to the streets, there's rules. 
They ain't written down and you won't find them in a book. It's natural stuff you know the moment your mama let you out the house. Kind of like how you know how to breathe without somebody telling you. If there was a book, though, there would be a whole section on street ball. And the most important rule would be at the top, in big, bold letters. Don't get your ass beat in front of a fine girl, especially if she your girl. But that's exactly what I'm doing, getting my ass beat in front of Lisa. It's okay, Maverick, she calls out from a picnic table. You've got this. Straight up, I ain't got nothing. Me and King got zero points to Dre and Sean's 11. One more point, and they win. Big as King is, you think he blocked Sean's lanky ass or something. Sean getting bombed like he don't exist. Posting him up, shooting jumpers in his face, all that. Got the homies going wild on the sidelines and got King looking like a fool. I can't be mad at King. Not with what's going down today. My head not in the game much either. It's one of them perfect August days where the sun real bright yet it's not too hot to play ball. Rose Park full of King Lords in gray and black. Seemed like all the homies came to get a game in. Not the King Lords need an excuse to come to Rose. This our territory. We handle business here. Chill out here. Get our bus kicked on the court here. I checked the ball to Dre. He grinned extra wide. Come on, Mav. You going out like this in front of your girl? Lisa should have played instead of you. Ooh, echo along the sidelines. Dre never go easy on me because I'm his younger cousin. He been dunking on me since I was big enough to hold a ball. If you want something um, within that sort of community, but not so hard hitting, there is one called Love is a Revolution by Renee Watson. And it's about Nala Robertson, who reluctantly agrees to attend an open mic night for her cousin's sister, Fran, Imani's birthday, and falling instant in love with Ty Brown the MC. So she's a girl with ass. And I like that because big girls rock. So he is perfect and he's also interested in her, but he is a, an, an activist. So she finds herself having to sort of like get to know his interests, even though she just rather try out the seasonal ice cream flavors at the local creamery. It is actually uh, not so much a romance between a boy and a girl, but more about a girl finding herself and falling in love with herself as well and accepting herself. You know, so I think this is quite a nice little YA as well, you know, to balance out things by Angie Thomas. Next, Diana. Um, I'm just going to mention very quickly these books that are coming out in the series. Lee Badugo has a new one out to um, complete the King of Scars duology. It's called Rule of Wolves. You don't need me to tell you what that's about. So um, Nicolas, Nikolai, <laughs> whatever his name is, yeah. Okay. Melissa Albert has another one. It's called The Hazelwood 2.5. So I guess it's not really a continuation of the story because like, you know, they, they, I like to add like little sides, I guess. It's called Tales from the Hinterland. So it's um, a collection of 12 fairy tales by the author of The Hazelwood and Night Country. And Victoria Schwab has one out to add to her Cassidy Blake series. It's called Bridge of Souls. Yeah, and... Holly Jackson has one out as a sequel to A Good Girl's Guide to Murder. It's called, a, it's called Good Girl, Bad Blood. Mm. And that's coming out in March. Well, speaking of fairy tales, <laughs> I've got like a, a rather cute one here called Rumesa, a fairy tale by Radia Hafiza. And this is a retelling of some fairy tales, except it's for hijabi girls. So 
it's Rumaisa Rumaisa let down your hijab instead of Rapunzel. So basically, Rumaisa has been locked away in her tall, tall tower, forced to use her magic to spin straw into gold for an evil witch. There you go, then have Rumpelstiltskin. Until one day after dropping a hijab out of a small tower window, she realizes she might be able to escape. <laughs> so she adventures through Enchanted Forest into Dragon's Lairs and discover her own incredible powers and teams up with Cinderella, R-A-Y-L-A, and Sleeping Sarah. Uh, it's also got really beautiful illustrations. So it's basically a fairy tale reimagined. And it's supposed to be very empowering. And I, I guess it's like people wanting an own voices kind of fairy tale, but something that is set, that is quite familiar. Right. Okay. <laughs> I, I don't know how many people are still keeping up with um, the Graceling Realm series by Kristen Kishore. I started reading them a long time ago. I, I can't remember how long that that was ago. Me too. But yeah, um, the fourth book is coming out. It's called Winter Keep. It's a continuation of the story, I suppose. Um, but but although the first three books weren't really continuations, they were like set in the same world. Yeah, they were standalones, I remember. Right. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I do. I do think so. I don't even remember what happened in Bitter Blue, the third book. I have not read that. I think I've only read the first two books. Winterkeep is a new nation with a familiar reality. In the book, there's a feel in Winterkeep that politicians are really divided about. It can do a lot of wonderful things, but it's also a polluter. Hmm. Sounds a little bit different. Not so much fantasy, more sci-fi maybe. Maybe. And so Kishore says, My awareness of global warming and the way that we're treating Earth and using up our resources was on my mind as well as how our human behavior affects animals in the ocean. Oh, cli-fi so, fantasy then. Maybe. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I've got a last one here called Witches Steeped in Gold by Siannan Smart. That's coming out in April. And this is a Caribbean-inspired YA fantasy. Uh, it's about two enemy witches who must enter into a deadly alliance to take down a common enemy. Yep. Pretty much solidly in YA territory. So you have a, a queen's daughter and then you have a, a prisoner. And they are sworn enemies. They meet up and then they have to take down something that is going to threaten everything that is known by them. Again, but yeah. it's set in the Caribbean. So you might <laughs> like that because it's kind of Jamaican. Like they're saving the world, like, which is basically <laughs> what they're doing anyway, right? I'm also going to tell you about The Bright and the Pale by Jessica Robinkowski, which is coming out in March. This book has been pitched as The Bear and the Nightingale meets Shadow and Bone. Okay. Right? So it's a story of 17-year-old Valeria who is one of the few survivors after dark magic leaves everyone else, including her family, trapped in an unbreakable sheet of ice. So the Tsar wants to imprison anyone who has escaped, so Valeria is on the run, and she finds refuge with the Thieves' Guild and her best friend, Alik, until he's murdered. But when Valeria discovers that Alik is alive a year later, she must risk her life for his freedom. Teenager saving the world. Well, I mean, I, I actually do have one more. If you like magical schools, you know, I've been listening to Carry On by Rainbow Rowell recently and I've forgotten how much I quite like magical schools. There's one coming out called Amari and the Night Brothers. Uh, so Amari Peters has never stopped believing that her missing brother, Quinton, is alive. So when she finds a ticking briefcase in his closet containing a nomination for a summer tryout at the Bureau of Supernatural Affairs, she's certain that the organization holds the key to locating Quinton. But she has to wrap her head around the idea of magicians, fairies, aliens, and she finds out that her roommate is a were-dragon. <laughs> That's a new one. <laughs> so she has to compete for a spot against kids who have known about magic their whole lives. And it was, I mean, you know, she has basically the imposter syndrome, but she did it all because she has to find out what happens to her brother. 
It's been almost six months since Quentin went missing, but it doesn't feel that long. Seems like just the other day he was calling Mama's phone to say he'd be home for Christmas. It was a big deal because Quentin was always gone once he got that fancy job after high school. The kind where you can't tell anybody what you do. I used to swear up and down that Quentin was some super secret spy like James Bond. But he would just give me this little smirk and say, You're wrong, but you're not totally wrong. Whenever I tried to get more out of him, he'd just laugh and promise to tell me when I got older. See, Quentin is smart, smart. He graduated valedictorian from Jefferson Academy and got full scholarship offers from two Ivy League schools. He turned them both down to work for whoever he was working for. When he went missing, I was sure his secret job had something to do with it, or at least that somebody who worked with him might know what happened. But when we told the detectives about his job, they looked at me and Mama like we were crazy. They had the nerve to tell us that, as far as they could tell, Quentin was unemployed, that there were no tax records to indicate that he ever had a job of any kind. But that just didn't make sense. He'd never lie about something like that. When Mama told them he used to send money home to help out with bills, the detective suggested that Quentin might be involved in something he didn't want us to know about, something illegal. That's always what people think when you come from the wood, a.k.a. the Rosewood Low-Income Housing Projects. And of course, there's an evil magician threatening the supernatural world and horrible classmates. Here we go. Why does it sound like a redux of Rick Riordan? <laughs> yeah. He's usually the reluctant hero slash heroine slash, right. oh, suddenly I find out I'm a demigod slash magician yeah. slash sorcerer. I have to go training and save the world. Um, just to add one in that is a YA historical fiction, um, The Shadow War by Lindsay Smith is coming out in February. And it's supposedly not your typical piece of historical fiction. It's set in 1942, where 18-year-old Liam thinks he knows a way to defeat the Nazis, and it involves a parallel universe. So he's joined by other four other teens, each of them part of the novel's refreshingly diverse world, and they partake in a fantastical fight for justice. Huh. Is Nazi um, alternative histories coming back in vogue or something? There seem to be a few on our list that has that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Cyclical, you know. One, yeah. one moment that you're doing an alien-based one, then vampires are back in fashion. The next thing you know, it's Western. Maybe Who knows? World War II is coming back. Yes. In, in vogue. I don't think it ever went away. I mean, like, Probably. we're just surrounded by World War II narratives all the time. Yeah, it's true. Can only have, you know, a, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So shall we quickly go into other books of interest? You want to start that off? Okay, um, since we haven't mentioned it this time yet, let me tell you about Whereabouts by Jhumpa Lahiri. Just in case you haven't heard, you know, you've been under a rock because we all have been for 2020. It's coming out in May. And this book by Jhumpa Lahiri is actually in Italian and, and she translated it back to English. I can't imagine how she does, how she did that. But I mean, like just kudos for this. But I mean, Jhumpa Lahiri, right? This is her first book in a decade. And this is about a woman who wavers between stasis and movement, between the need to belong and the refusal to form lasting ties. 
So the city she calls home is an engaging backdrop to her days and it acts as a confidant. The sidewalks around her house, parks, bar- bridges, piazzas, etc. And we follow her to the pool as she f- the pool she frequents and to the train station that sometimes leads her to her mother. So basically it's just like a little bit like um like a stream of conscience kind of thing, I suppose. Hmm. It this kind of meditation on cities and on architecture that affects uh, people and their mm-hmm. lives is a very Italian thing because I'm in the middle of reading Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino. Mm. Um, and it's basically a series of fictional cities that is told by Marco Polo to Genghis Khan. When I read this blurb on Lahiri's book, I almost feel like it's got a bit of homage to that. Mm. I mean, these might be book chasers as well, I think, because it's obviously these fictional cities in Calvino's books are not real cities. In vain, great-hearted Kubla, shall I attempt to describe Zaira, city of high bastions. I could tell you how many steps make up the streets, rising like stairways, and the degree of the arcade's curves, and what kind of zinc scales cover the roofs. But I already know this would be the same as telling you nothing. The city does not consist of this, but of relationships between the measurements of its space and the events of its past, the height of a lamppost and the distance from the ground of a hanged usurper's swaying feet. The line strung from the lamppost to the railing opposite and the festoons that decorate the course of the Queen's nuptial procession, the height of that railing and the leap of the adulterer who climbed over it at dawn, the rips in the fishnet, and the three old men seated on the dock mending nets and telling each other for the hundredth time the story of the gunboat of the usurper, who, some say, was the queen's illegitimate son, abandoned in his swaddling clothes there on the dock. As this wave from memories flows in, the city soaks it up like a sponge and expands. A description of Zaira, as it is today, should contain all Zaira's past, The city, however, does not tell its past, but contains it like the lines of a hand. At the end of three days, moving southward, you come upon Anastasia, a city with concentric canals watering it and kites flying over it. I should now list the wares that can profitably be bought here, agate, onyx, chrysoprase, and other varieties of chalcedony. I should praise the flesh of the golden pheasant cooked here over fires of seasoned cherry wood and sprinkled with much sweet marjoram and tell of the women I have seen bathing in the pool of a garden and who sometimes, it is said, invite the stranger to disrobe with them and chase them in the water. But with all this, I would not be telling you the city's true essence. If for eight hours a day you work as a cutter of agate, onyx, chrysoprase, Your labor, which gives form to desire, takes from desire its form, and you believe you are enjoying Anastasia wholly when you are only its slave. A lot of them are cities of the mind or or cities that uh, are realized in dreams. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, after all, she wrote it in Italian, right? So that's kind of interesting to think of that, that what could have influenced her. Uh, Okay, so we have Alisa Tadio who wrote Three Women, has a book out called Animal. So obviously, uh, Three Women was non-fiction, sort of, even though it's right, written in a very fiction-y kind of way. You can listen to our show. We discussed this with Min Han from Lit Books. So she follows this up with an actual debut novel. So this is fiction. 
And this depicts female rage at its roarest, firmly in Tadio territory. So it's supposed to be a visceral exploration of the fallout from a male-dominated society. It tells the story of Joan, who flees a horrific act of violence in New York City to find solace with an old friend on the West Coast where she finally might find the resolve to strike back. So there's vengeance in this book as well. Mm, might be a little bit to do, like sort of on the similar vein, um, Isabel Allende's The Soul of a Woman, um, which is coming out in March. In The Soul of a Woman, it's a deeply personal story of family trauma and her relationship with her mother, her own experiences with marriage. And she also has managed to make this a bit of a feminist theory kind of thing, a study in the sacrifices women are forced to make and the evolving definitions of feminism. It sort of feels like it's semi kind of like a little bit like a fictionalized version of her own life, which she does quite often. Like a fiction. Yeah, she right? does that a fair bit. Yeah. Uh, of course, uh, Gillian Flynn's Hamlet. If you've been following the Hoga series where famous writers basically reimagine uh, different Shakespearean plays. If you haven't read any, I would recommend um, The Tempest Retelling by Margaret Atwood. That's really good. Uh, you also have Othello called The New Boy. So those are very good retellings. But Gillian Flynn, of course, tackles Hamlet. I'm not sure whether it's set in modern times or whether it's a reimagining of it based in Shakespearean sort of like era. But, you know, it's Flynn. I'm going to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Caroline Kepnes has a new book out called You Love Me which is coming out in April. And of course, Caroline Kepnes is the author behind the really hot series, You, right? And yeah, You Love Me is the third in the series. Um, So it's all about, you know, Joe, the psychopathic bookseller and his, you know, and the women he stalks (laughs) being all around creep, I guess. (laughs) So in You Love Me, Joe is out of prison, but he's cut off from his son. And he, and he embraces his new exile from California by stalking a new love interest, the local librarian, Mary Kay. Oh, my God. It's starting all over again. Like, you know, you can't keep a good stalker down, right? No. <laughs> no. Can't take the stalker out of the man. <laughs> if you're a fan of the series, I guess, you know, you, you want to pick this one up. <laughs> I've never really read any of her her series, actually. No, hmm. I mean, like, the whole idea of the stalker thing, no. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> hmm. Well, you have Helen Oyayemi, who must be the fastest writer in the world. I oh mean, either God. than yeah. Stephen King, because Stephen King yeah. has a book out as well. Yes. So this one, and, you know, like, her stuff is always a little bit offbeat, a little bit off-kilter. I mean, she's written interesting stuff like Gingerbread and Mr. Fox and all that kind of stuff, right? So this one is about a hypnotist on a train bound, non-honeymoon with his boyfriend and their pet mongoose. Okay. I think I'm just going to leave you guys with that statement. (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you about Stephen King's um, latest. It's called Later. (laughs) It's due out in March. It's like crime-focused, kind of gritty kind of thing. It's not really, I guess, full-out horror. So it's about Jamie Conklin, who is a teenage boy with a single mom. He has abilities. That's in, you know, (laughs) parentheses. Abilities that could help others. But there's a Faustian bargain in the mix. Does he help the NYPD or is there too much at stake? And there's also a novel within the novel to add complexity to this tale, but it's also compassionate and tender as any true Stephen King book tends to be. 
So exploitation of that tenderness always contains the real horror of crime. So um, and he hasn't been he hasn't really sh- given out too much details about this book yet, but people pick it up just because it's got his name on the on the on the cover, right? Yeah, I mean, this is another writer like Murakami that has themes that he goes back to again and again. There's yeah. always like a special child, a lot of it. There's always unexpected friendships. He writes bromances really well as well. And, you know, Stephen King at the end of the day is always a good in-between book to read because you always know that he holds you well within his narrative world. And yeah, I mean, I always find it a good read to read in-between heavier reads, the Stephen King book. You always know what you're going to get with Mr. King. Well, Olha, do you know how to pronounce her name? Olha Tokarczuk? Tokarczuk. Yeah, I, I suppose like like her and Kawakami and all that, um, their books are slowly being translated. So sometimes when we're talking about their books, you're not entirely sure whether they're like an older publication that's finally um, accessible to us in English or whether it's actually a, tr- a new book. But this one is about, oh, you want to? Yeah, Olga Tokarczuk, um, The Lost Soul, which is coming out in February. Oh, short stories. Mm-hmm. Seven short stories. What oh, was the okay. name of her last, um, like, really, like, really weird name? Drive Your Bones Over Something of the Dead. Drive Your Plow Over the over bro- Bones of the Dead. Yeah. I literally bought their book, that book for the title. <laughs> and I quite enjoy it because it's actually kind of quirky. And her protagonist is always somebody that you don't see very often because her protagonist is like an old, slightly nosy woman. I am already at an age and additionally in a state where I must always wash my feet thoroughly before bed. In the event of having to be removed by an ambulance in the night. Had I examined the ephemerides that evening to see what was happening in the sky, I wouldn't have gone to bed at all. Meanwhile, I had fallen very fast asleep. I had helped myself with an infusion of hops, and I also took two valerian pills. So, when I was woken in the middle of the night by hammering on the door, violent, immoderate, and thus ill-omened, I was unable to come round. I sprang up and stood by the bed, unsteadily, because my sleepy, shaky body couldn't make the leap from the innocence of sleep into wakefulness. Unfortunately, this has been happening to me lately and has to do with my ailments. There was a crunch of snow, and into my field of vision came my neighbor, whom I call Oddball. He was wrapping himself in the tails of the old sheepskin coat I'd sometimes seen him wearing as he worked outside the house. Open up, he said. With undisguised astonishment, he cast a glance at my linen suit. I sleep in something the professor and his wife wanted to throw away last summer, which reminds me of a fashion from the past and the days of my youth. Thus I combine the practical and the sentimental, and without a by your leave, he came inside. Please get dressed. Bigfoot is dead. So I'm thinking 
that's sort of like where she's at because this one is about souls, right? Mm-hmm. Basically, the story is about a man who worked very hard and very quickly and who had left his soul far behind him long ago. <laughs> In fact, his life was all right without his soul. He slept, ate, worked, drove a car and even played tennis. But sometimes he felt as if the world around him were flat, as if he were moving across a smooth page in a math book that was covered in evenly spaced squares. Oh my God, I feel this book. I feel the story. Oh my God. <laughs> now that you've read it out loud to me, I feel that I might have to read it. It's yeah. probably uh, for <laughs> fans of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. It mm. sounds like that sort know. of like... I like that idea of how we keep operating without your soul. Because sometimes it feels like, you know, you, you, we're just putting ourselves into, into like auto drive, right? We just go through life, just not even thinking about what we're doing. And it's an illustrated book. So apparently you can read it to your children. Hmm. So when they ask you that, what's a soul? You can read them this book. It might leave them more disturbed, but never mind. Uh, even pictures can't tell you what a soul is, I think. <laughs> That's going to be a fun one. That's a, that's a good question, right? Do you really need a soul? But then again, anyway. If you can't draw it, what's the point of it? <laughs> uh, well, you've got a food book here, Mark Bittman, who yeah. actually, I have to say, um, he does actually do very good recipes when he was contributing to the New York Times. Um, he's got Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. That's coming out in February. That sounds interesting. Yeah, so he's got more than 20 books on food, cooking, and culture. So he's back with the story of the human species through the lens of food and flavor. And he talks about how, what kind of lengths people go through to obtain food, from hunting and gathering to agriculture and, of course, technology. And, you know, you're going into territory where food production and, you know, it's probably the sort of book that might want to turn into be a vegetarian. Diana's already a vegetarian. <laughs> but he goes through history on, on, you know, like the sort of like evolution of how people get food for their daily consumption. So he basically wants us to examine history, uh, which hopefully can hold us some lessons for future, especially, you know, with climate change and diminishing resources and, you know, greenhouse effects and everything. Uh, you know, another book that is supposed to make you be a little bit more aware of what you put on your plate and into your body. Yes. Okay, so um, Sarah J. Mass has a new book out in February. Of course she does. Another With, very prolific writer. Yes. The fourth book of A Court of Thorns and Roses. So it's A Court of Silver Flames. You know what the book's about. I don't need to tell you anything more about it. <laughs> uh, I think that's about it, right? Oh, we have David Duchovny's book. Yes. So David Duchovny, he of X-Files and Californication, has a book out called Truly Like Lightning. And apparently... It's rather good, reluctantly admits a lot of critics. So basically, he started his fictional career, I mean, his literary fiction career with a banyard fable called Holy Cow, a modern day dairy tale. I actually want to read this book now. Um, and each new novel, he basically has gotten better. So his latest book is about a former Hollywood stuntman and converted Mormon who has been peacefully homesteading in the California desert with three wives and 10 children when a young developer with a dangerous ultimatum appears to append his tranquil new life. Huh. What do you think, Diana, of this blurb? I don't know. It's a little bit out there for me. Yeah. Hmm. <gasps> I have to think about that one. Hmm. 
We've actually haven't even mentioned Joan Didion. We haven't mentioned Carl Obe Nosgard. We did mention um, Salman Rushdie, but yeah, we haven't really told you about the essays that he's got out. Wow, you know, we're just drowning in books again. It's not a bad problem to have having more choices out there. It just makes it really hard to go home when you get to a bookstore. If you find Rushdie's sort of like novels very dense, maybe mm-hmm. essays are more your speed. So he has essays out, uh, Languages of Truth, the stuff that he wrote from 2003 to 2020. So of course, he writes on the nature of storytelling, censorship, multiculturalism. Uh, I think a lot of stuff that his actual fiction touches, but maybe essays might be an easier way to read Rushdie. And then your Nausgaard, He's still writing his memoirs, right? Because he's got like gajillion books on it, doesn't he? But this is also a collection of essays. So it goes into a wide range of topics from Igmar Bergman's notebooks to the Northern Lights to Madame Bovary to Rembrandt. Another way to access a writer that might not necessarily write books that are easy for you to read is through their essays. And then then maybe you can decide whether you want to read their novels. Right. What else do we have here, Diana? Edward Carey, who has a new book out called The Swallowed Man, which is uh, out in January. It's a retelling of Pinocchio. Nice. Mm-hmm. Oh. My boy. My brave little boy. Prove yourself brave, truthful, and unselfish. And someday you will be a real boy. Awake, Pinocchio. Awake. Father! What you crying for? Because you're dead, Pinocchio. No! No, I'm not! Yes. Yes, you are. Now lie down. But father, I'm alive, see? And and I'm 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 real. I'm a real boy. You're alive. And, and you are a real boy. He's been doing these things, right? Where he goes back into historical figures and he writes, you know, like from their point of view and stuff like that. Yeah, this is a retelling of Pinocchio and with a vast well of sympathy for the lying puppet's lonesome and troubled creator who spends much of the swallowed man contemplating his sins while in the belly of a whale. Wow. Oh, really interesting. We should, story, I guess. we should read Pinocchio and then this book and do a show yeah. on it. There you go. So many book chases already. And then yeah. last on your list is Avni Doshi's Burn Sugar. I reckon this is probably um, the paperback or something, right? Because I think it's been out already because it right. was sh- shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Yeah. Or it could be just the US release. So uh, Again, it's a story about family. It's about an artist who wonders whether her mother, only middle age, is going mad. And apparently, as she discovers more and more things about her family, it gets weirder and weirder. I've noted down many things about my mother. The hour she falls asleep at night when her reading glasses slip down the greasy slide of her nose, or the number of Mazarin filos she eats for breakfast. I have been keeping track of these details. I know the skirted responsibilities and where the surface of story has been buffed smooth. Sometimes when I visit her, she asks me to phone friends who are long dead. 
My mother was a woman who could memorize recipes she had only read once. She could recall variations of tea made in other people's homes. When she cooked, she reached out for bottles and masalas without glancing up. Ma remembered the technique the Maimon neighbors used to kill goats during Bakra Eid on the terrace above her parents' old apartment, much to the Jane landlord's horror, and how the wire-haired Muslim tailor once gave her a rusty basin to collect the blood in. She described the metallic taste for me and how she had licked her red fingers. My first taste of non-veg, she said. Sometimes I refer to Ma in the past tense, even though she is still alive. This would hurt her if she could remember it long enough. Dilip is her favorite person at the moment. He is an ideal son-in-law. When they meet, there are no expectations clouding the air around them. He doesn't remember her as she was. He accepts her as she is and is happy to reintroduce himself if she forgets his name. I wish I could be that way. But the mother I remember appears and vanishes in front of me, a battery-operated doll whose mechanism is failing. The doll turns inanimate. The spell is broken. The child does not know what is real or what can be counted on. Maybe she never knew. The child cries. I wish India allowed for assisted suicide like the Netherlands, not just for the dignity of the patient, but for everyone involved. I should be sad instead of angry. Sometimes I cry when no one else is around. I am grieving, but it's too early to burn the body. There you go. It's supposed to be quite shocking as well. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people did actually enjoy this book. Oh, I, I actually thought it was about a book about somebody who runs a bakery <laughs> and keeps burning sugar. But obviously, it's a study in madness. Never mind, honey. Before I forget, um, Kristen Hanna has a new one out called The Four Winds. So it's a story about a family in 1930s Texas and they how they survive in the blighted dust of the land they love dearly or are they going to move away to the unknown country to the west alright I think that ends our part two, Diana have oh, yes. we told people enough books we have not told them probably not even half the books that are actually coming out in the first half of the year I don't think um, we even told them what's coming out in January but never mind. We hope that this gives you a little bit of insight on what you might want to pick up mm-hmm. in the next couple of months. Think of us when you're standing in front of the new releases at Kinokuniya and say, okay, all right. So, you know, like Honey said, this one's good. I'm going to look at it. There. Yes. <laughs> yes, we are here to help. We'll help you find your next great read. All right, everyone. Um, as usual, I would like to shout out to our Season 4 sponsors, the wonderful folks over at Lit Books, the purveyor of good reads. Uh, do visit their charming shop at Tropicana Avenue. You can buy their books online and use our promo code TBNT10 at checkout and you will get 10% off. That is still going on, guys. So please take this opportunity to buy your next reads from Lit Books. If you enjoyed this, this episode, please do go look us up We've got tons of episodes. I think we're up to episode like 85 or something like that. Yeah. Um, nice. So yeah, we have had a lot of um, different dives into books. So one that I think you might be interested in uh, is No, There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job by Kiku Kosumura, which we did in season four, episode eight. I don't know what you're in the mood for, but you probably find it in our list. 
Mm. And don't forget, we actually have a new reading challenge for 2021. So, from February onwards, we are going to do a small show that will give you recommendations on what you might want to read for the challenge of the next month. So, at the end of January, we'll probably have a show on February's challenge, which is a Southeast Asian writer or a book set in Southeast Asia. So yeah, and of course we also have a Patreon page. You know, check it out at Patreon.com/tbntpod and consider subscribing. Every little bit helps us, you know, keep chugging along. You know, like help us to get beverages, even to buy stamps and stuff like that. That costs money too. We would like to thank Patreons Katie Sykes. Thank you also Vivian Ong, Asharina Savaraja, Amy Lee, Yan Lai Pin, and Cox and Y. Here's wishing you a good week ahead. This episode was brought to you by Renegade Radio, edited by Honey Ahmad, and our senior producer Kelvin Tay. <laughs> Have a good week ahead, guys.